Muhammad Ali Jinnah was born on December 25, 1876, in Wazir Mansion, Nunaham Road, Karadar, Karachi. He took his early education in Sindh Madrasa Tool Islam, Karachi. Muhammad Ali was 16 years old and student of 5th Standard English, under matriculation, when in 1883 he left for England for studies and apprenticeship in business administration in the head office of Graham Trading Company. He joined Lincoln's Inn and graduated from there in two years with distinction. Mr. Jinnah once confided that, he was the youngest student ever to be called to the bar. He grew up to be tall, handsome, erect, graceful with chiseled features like a Greek god. He was always elegantly and tastefully dressed. He wore Savile Row tailored suits and the silk cord of his monocle matching the color of the suit that he wore. This appendix of his dress became known all over as was the, Windsor Knot, of then Prince of Wales. British viceroys like Harding, Kelmsford, Reading and Halifax all thought that Mr. Jinnah was, the best dressed gentleman they ever met in India. Mr. Jinnah was always self-confident, indomitable and full of pride and as a matter of principle he would never entertain favors from anyone, or accept any giveaway as gesture of benevolence. Early in his professional career, at the expiry of six months temporary assignment of the vacant post of presidency magistrate, when Sir Charles Ollivant, member for the Bombay Executive Council offered him a permanent job at a higher salary, he spurned the offer saying, soon, I will be daily earning that much amount, that you have offered me. Such was his confidence and faith in his ability and the world saw that within a couple of years he was one of the highest paid lawyer in the country. Lord Redding, the Viceroy of India offered him knighthood, which Mr. Jinnah declined saying that he prefers to be called plain Mr. Jinnah than Sir Muhammad Ali Jinnah. It is interesting to know that after Mr. Jinnah's refusal to be knighted, when Lord Reading at an informal reception, turned to Mrs. Maryam Brady Jinnah and asked her to request her husband to agree to be knighted, she promptly retorted, if my husband accepts knighthood, I will ask separation from him. Years later, Mr. Ramsay MacDonald, the British Prime Minister, said to Mr. Jinnah, you know that we are hoping to grant self-government to India and I shall need men like you to be governors of provinces. Mr. Jinnah promptly replied back, Mr. MacDonald, are you trying to bribe me? It was against Mr. Jinnah's grain to Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Bharat Law, made his debut in politics as a staunch nationalist. Within a short period of his joining the Congress in 1905 he made his mark and was soon counted as one of its front-rank leaders. With his true nationalistic approach to politics he came to be known as, Ambassador of Hindu-Muslim Unity. The question then intrigued, what was it that changed Mr. Jinnah's thinking so radically? There must have been something very fundamental that disillusioned this, ambassador of Hindu-Muslim unity and idol of young Indian nationalists of 1920s, and turned him into an avid champion of the interest of his community. Mr. H. B. Hodson, an eminent British historian sums up Mr. Jinnah's character thus, one thing is certain he did not change for any venal motive. Not even his political enemies ever accused Jinnah of corruption or self-seeking. He could be bought by no one, and for no price. He was a steadfast idealist as well as a man of scrupulous honor. He could not be bought, he could not be lured, then what was it that brought this radical change in Mr. Jinnah? The answer to this question of change of his ideals lie in the deeds, rather, misdeeds, and behavior of the Congress leaders. He became thoroughly disenchanted with the two-faced policies and distinct contradictions in the lofty ideals professed in public and actual deeds of the so-called, nationalist, Hindu leaders.
The history of the Congress is replete with instances of deliberate efforts to undermine Muslim interests with a view to amalgamating their separate identity in the bigger whole. To enumerate a few examples, Congress's opposition to separate electorates, opposition to and later agitation against the partition of Bengal which eventually they got annulled in 1911, repudiation of the Lucknow Pacts, rejection of Jinnah's 14 points, refusal to form coalition ministries with Muslim League in the provinces where the Congress won majorities in the 1937 elections, as assured both by the Congress and the British government in discussions that preceded the 1935 India Act, imposition of Hindu culture in government offices and educational institutions in Congress government provinces, introduction of Warda scheme primary education, the launching of a mass contact movement amongst the Muslims by passing the League and all other disgusted with the hypocrisy and double standards of the top brass of the Congress leadership, Mr. Jinnah left for London in October 1930 to settle and start his legal practice there before the Privy Council. The 30s was a crucial period for the Muslim community in the subcontinent when Muslim politics was in a state of flux and they were heartlessly being tossed about in the stormy winds of politics and they drifted aimlessly like a rudderless ship in the angry sea of politics. At this time of despair and despondency when all seemed lost, there appeared on the dark horizon, a silver streak of hope. Mr. Jinnah was persuaded to return home to assume the stewardship of the battered and demoralized Muslims. He returned to India in 1934 and appeared on the scene like a superstar, a star of hope for the Muslims and one destined to dominate the future political scene in the subcontinent. Within a very short time of his return from his self-imposed exile in England, this idol of the young Indian nationalists of the 20s, now turned into a champion of the hitherto neglected cause of the Muslims. He assumed the key role in the political life of the subcontinent. It was however, in March 1936 and the venue was Delhi when Mr. M.A. Jinnah finally decided upon his future course of action and sounded a clarion call to the Muslims to unite. He said, we must think of the interests of our community. The Musalmans and Hindus must be organized separately and once they are organized thus, they will understand each other. This was a turning point in the history of the subcontinent. The die was cast and from this point of time onwards there was no obstacle insurmountable. The response from the Muslim masses was historic and they rose as one man at his call and like a storm swept everything before them. In spite of his frail health the Kwaiti Azam worked tirelessly and galvanized the Muslims of India into a nation. The name of Kwaiti Azam acquired a magnetic perception for the Muslims of India, they trusted him and reposed complete faith and confidence in his judgment and the advocacy of their cause. The nation was now ready, he gathered the pieces that were drifting in the wind of political wilderness and molded them into a powerful and solid whole. The Muslims now became a political force to be reckoned with, both by the Hindus and those sitting in the Viceregal Lodge. Every passing day increased the popularity of Mr. Jinnah and Muslim India's faith in his leadership and ability to deliver the goods on their behalf. The snowball action started and the Muslims flocked to swell the ranks of the Muslim League. The so-called nationalist Muslim leaders stood isolated. The Muslim community now stood as one behind the man of destiny. It was now 1940. He decided that the time was now ripe to indicate its destination. On March 23, 1940, under the shadows of the majestic Badshahi Mosque at Lahore, he said, We stand unequivocally for the freedom of India. But it must be freedom of all India and not freedom of one section, for worse still, of the Congress caucus and slavery of Musalmans and other minorities.
quote ellipsis ellipsis ellipsis. I appeal to you, to organize yourself in such a way that you may depend upon none except your own inherent strength. That is your only safeguard and the best safeguard. Depend upon yourself. Preempting British thinking on the future constitution he warned the British, we and we alone wish to be the final arbiter, we do not want that the British government should thrust upon the Musulmans a constitution which they do not approve of and to which they do not agree. I make it plain from this platform, that if any declaration is made, if any interim settlement is made without our approval and without our consent, the Musulmans of India will resist, and no mistake should be made on that score. Elaborating the point of nationhood and the demand of a separate homeland he argued. It has always been taken for granted mistakenly, that Musulmans are a minority. The Musulmans are not a minority. The Musulmans are a nation by any definition. Even according to the British map of India, we occupy large parts of the country, where the Musulmans are in majority, such as Bengal, Punjab, NWFP, Sindh and Baluchistan, the Hindus and Musulmans belongs to two different religious philosophies, social customs, literatures, they belong to two different civilizations, their aspects on life and of life are different, Hindus and Musulmans derive their inspiration from two different sources of history. They have different epics, different heroes, and different episodes, very often the hero of one is a foe of the other and likewise the unity of India dates back only to the British conquest and maintained by the British bayonet. Winding up his case for a separate homeland for his nation he summoned up thus, Musulmans are a nation according to any definition of a nation and they must have their homeland, their territory and their state. Turning to his people he said, I have placed before you the task that lies ahead of us. Do you realize how big and stupendous it is? Do you realize that you cannot get freedom or independence by mere arguments? Come forward as servants of Islam, organize the people economically, socially, educationally and politically and I am sure that you will be a power that will be accepted by everybody. Thunderous applause and Kwaiti Azam, Zindabad, and Pakistan, Zindabad, slogans ranted the air of Lahore. Mr. Jinnah, a brilliant and astute lawyer that he was, his natural gift of eloquence, cool thinking, cold-blooded logic of his arguments, forceful style of advocacy, dauntless courage combined with political foresight that he was endowed with, made Mr. Jinnah the key figure in the politics of the country from then on. With his political sense and acumen he could foresee things far beyond, much ahead of anyone else. During Congress League negotiations in the 40s when all the wise men of the Congress Working Committee would sit together for days to make out the Congress case, whereas Mr. Jinnah's response on behalf of the Muslim League would come within a day or so that would outsmart them all. The one-man think tank of Muslim India would sit down and calmly dictate replies to these communications from the All India Congress Committee. Tackling dexterously, point by point, all their salient propositions and demolishing their arguments one by one, the Quaid in his characteristic style, at the same time, would be building up his own case with logic and deft reasoning. He would in his counter-attack thus throw the Congress on the defensive or even force it to retreat. He was like the Grand Master making his subtle moves on the political chessboard of the subcontinent. He knew the weaknesses of his people, was aware of the organizational deficiencies that the Musulmans suffered from and he was also conscious of the vacillating nature of most of the Muslims, they only liked to talk and no constructive thinking or actions. Some even scoffed at his proposed, destination. He was very sure and said, we shall achieve Pakistan and of course, he who laughs last, laughs the best. 
The whole world saw that within a short span of only five and a half years, from the day of this prediction the word, shall, was turned into the word, have, when the nation could proudly claim, we have established our Pakistan. His prophecy came true. Such was the kind of rapport that this man of destiny had with destiny. His critics may call him cold, aloof and even arrogant, but it is only this far that they could go and no more. Even the most bitter opponents of Mr. Jinnah could not help but admit the sterling qualities of his character, uprightness, integrity, and incorruptibility. They knew he would never compromise on principles. The creation of Pakistan is often referred to as a miracle of the 20th century. It is rightly so, besides, many political, economic, ethnic and social impediments, the colonial powers holding the subcontinent to ransom were against the division of India. History bears testimony to the fact that India was never one, it was never a unified whole. His Majesty's government, however for reasons best known to them, was keen to preserve the artificial unity of their Indian Empire. Some of the contemporary British writers taking their cue from the Whitehall, took the same line. Maybe, they genuinely believed in it and liked to think of India as an indivisible whole. As such, any person working against this concept was dubbed by them as, rigid, and, stubborn, and Mr. Jinnah, to them was that person. In doing so they betrayed history and maligned their profession. The defaced version of history may only have a temporary impact but truth must prevail in the end and Mr. Jinnah is a shining example of this dictum. No person, no matter how mighty his pen, Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a remarkable person, an extraordinary statesman and unique for his political sagacity. He was no wali or saint in terms of religious terminology but he was certainly a political saint for the Muslims of the subcontinent. Whereas the Wallace and saints did a great service to Islam by converting countless infidels to the true faith and spiritually guiding faithfuls to follow the right path, Mr. Jinnah as a political saint turned the Muslim minority of the Indian subcontinent into a nation and emancipated them from the evil axis of Anglo-Hindu tyranny and domination by guiding and leading them to the eventual goal of Pakistan, a safe heaven for them and established the largest Muslim state. The services of Mr. Jinnah as political saint are no less momentous to the Muslims of South Asia as those of the spiritual Wallace and saints to Islam. The clerics and the orthodox may not agree with me but in the present day and age, facts of history cannot be ignored. Let us not forget that Islam is a progressive religion and we must interpret it in the context of present day thinking. M.A. Jinnah was a known name the world over even in the early 20th century. He was respected as steadfast, resolute and an impeccable leader with the highest integrity. He was considered as one of the top most legal brains of South Asia. The true standing of an individual is always reflected in what his contemporaries think of him. Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America said of him, Mr. Jinnah was the recipient of a devotion of loyalty seldom accorded to any man. His Highness the Aga Khan III ranked him very high amongst the contemporary world figures. He said, of all the statesmen that I have known in my life, believe me, he know very many Clemenceau, Lloyd George, Churchill, Curzon, Mussolini, Mahatma Gandhi, Jinnah is the most remarkable. None of these men, in my view outshone him in strength of character and that almost uncanny combination of precision and resolution is Mr. Jinnah. 
Similarly, Lord Listowel, senior member of Clement Attlee's cabinet said, I would rate Mr. Jinnah as a bigger political giant of the 20th century than even General de Gaulle. Even those in the opposite political camp praised his qualities of head and heart. Mr. M. K. Gandhi, his political rival in South Asia, in one of his letters to Mr. Lewis Fisher wrote, Mr. Jinnah is incorruptible and courageous. Another Indian National Congress ex-president, a former governor and federal minister and a renowned poetess Mrs. Sarojini Naidu, named Mr. Jinnah, ambassador of Hindu-Muslim unity and one of subcontinents, the media is a reflection of public opinion. International and local newspapers wrote highly of Mr. M. A. Jinnah. The world's renowned newspaper, The Times wrote, few statesmen have shaped events to their policy more surely than Mr. Jinnah. He was a legend even in his lifetime. Two of the leading newspapers of subcontinent, the Daily Statesman of India referred to him, seemingly as hard as a diamond, he had all the diamond's brilliance. Another renowned newspaper, Amrit Bazar Patrika from Calcutta wrote on August 8, 1947, Jinnah outweights Truman, Stalin and Attlee put together. A great tribute from a well-known staunch pro-Akhand Bharat newspaper of volatile Bengal. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. M. A. Jinnah of the early 20th century. Mr. Muhammad Ali Jinnah started his political career in 1905 as a staunch liberal from the platform of the Indian National Congress. The same year along with Gopal Krishna Gokhale, a foremost Hindu nationalist, he represented the Congress in England to plead the Indian case for self-government. Mr. Gokhale was impressed with him and remarked, he has the true stuff in him and that freedom from all secretarian prejudice which will make him the best ambassador of Hindu-Muslim unity. A year later in 1906 he served as secretary to Dadabai Nauroji, the then Congress president, a position that was considered a great honor for any budding politician. The same year, in the Calcutta session of the Congress in December 1906, he made his first political speech in support of self-government. In January 1910, he was elected from Bombay with a thumping majority to the Imperial Legislative Council of India. Mr. M. A. Jinnah forcefully advocated the need of Hindu-Muslim unity and passionately expounded the cause of Indian freedom in and outside the Indian Legislative Council. He raised his voice against every system that discriminated between human beings and against every institution violating the dignity of man. He opposed colonialism. In his home constituency of Bombay, he was the president of the Bombay branch of the Home Rule League. Bombites recognized his services to the cause of Indian freedom, towards Hindu-Muslim unity and to the people of Bombay and constructed a public hall in his name. Jinnah Hall still stands in Bombay as a monument of his sterling services to the people of that city. Muslim League was formed in 1906 in Dhaka but in spite of great persuasion including that of his friend H.H. The Aga Khan III he did not join the Muslim League. It was only when the Muslim League at his instance in 1912 adopted self-government for India as its goal that Mr. Jinnah in 1913 joined the All India Muslim League. Three years later he became its president. Now he was member of both the All India Congress and All India Muslim League and in this unique position he tried to bring the two organizations closer and as a result of his efforts, the Congress League Lucknow Pact of 1916 was signed, detailing a joint scheme for post-war reforms and conceding Muslims the right to separate electorates. The parting of ways with the Congress came in 1920 when in the Nagpur session of the Congress, M.K. Gandhi changed the Congress creed to direct action and non-cooperation. 
Mr. Jinnah also resigned as president of Home Rule League when Gandhi after his election as its president in 1920 unilaterally changed its constitution and nomenclature. So the year 1920 marked a clean break between Mr. Jinnah and all that the Congress stood for. Mr. Jinnah now started to concentrate on reorganizing the Muslim League that was in disarray both at the central and provincial levels. It was an uphill task because he had to struggle single-handedly on this gigantic task but he was not deterred. Remember he once said, most of the coins in my pocket are base coins, or words to that effect. But it must be said to his credit that he used these, base coins, very judiciously for the Muslim cause. However, he had the unstinted support and loyalty of many young and budding politicians like M.A.H. Isfahani, Raja of Mahmudabad, Iftikhar Mamdat, Sardar Shakat Hayat and Qazi Muhammad Isa. With his determination, uncanny resolution and help of this young brigade he shaped the league into an effective political body. With all his dedication to the league and the Muslim cause, Mr. Jinnah considered Hindu-Muslim unity as precondition for Indian freedom. He attended many unity conferences, suggested incorporation of the Muslim demand for a federal structure as against the unitary form as envisaged in the Nehru Report for India's future constitution. All his suggestions were streamrolled. He then came up with his famous, 14 points. These points became the combined voice of all the Muslim organizations and the basic Muslim demand at the ensuing Round Table Conference in London in 1930-32. Congress League relations is propounded and advocated by Mr. Jinnah took a sudden confrontational posture starting with the outcome of the 1937 general elections under the 1935 Government of India Act when the Congress swept the polls. In the Muslim minority provinces, in spite of a tacit pre-elections understanding, the Congress of Nehru refused to accommodate the elected leaguers except for those who were prepared to merge with the ruling party. This was followed by Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru's, two forces, doctrine in 1936 being inserted into the body politics of India when he stated that, there are only two forces in India today, the British imperialism and the Indian National Congress representing Indian nationalism, to which Mr. Jinnah retorted that, I refuse to accept this. There is a third party in this country as well and that is Muslim India. Jinnah was dismayed and with a heavy heart finally pulled down the curtain on Congress League collaboration and finally closed the chapter of Hindu-Muslim unity, that up to that day was the core of his politics and panacea for the Indian independence. In the 1937 general elections, the League came out very poorly. In the Punjab, one of the four Muslim-majority provinces League could account for only two seats in the provincial assembly and even out of these two, one legislator became a Lota, at the time of ministry formation, leaving a sole league representative in the assembly. Congress volt faced to accommodate league representatives in Hindu-majority provinces and then Nehru's, two forces, doctrine injected into Indian body politics, finally forced Jinnah to take the cudgels on behalf of his community that was so far floating like a rudderless ship in the stormy waters of Indian politics. The year was 1937 when Mr. Jinnah took up the task of welding the disjointed pieces together and brought them up to the status of a nation from that of a minority community. This was the first step that he had in mind for advancing to their final emancipation. For doing this he met with lot of resistance from within, there were the feudals who were eager to protect their jaggers and positions bestowed on them by the British and then there were the clerics who even called him, Kafir-e-Azam, and Pakistan as, Dar al-Harb. 
He remained undaunted and continued with his task of consolidating the downtrodden community and organizing the league at all levels. Disregarding his ill health he worked hard, in fact very hard with selfless devotion and as a result he won the hearts of the overwhelming majority of Muslims. People trusted him, his integrity, his political acumen and statesmanship. In his mammoth public meetings where almost over 80% of the participants could not understand even one single word of English, they would listen to him in pin-drop silence and amazingly would clap and raise Zindabad's slogan at the points of emphasis in his speech. It was universally known that elderly people in the remote villages when talking to young people hearing radio or reading newspaper would ask, what has Baba said today, but in the same breath would reply themselves, whatever he has said must be true. These villagers would call Jinnah, Baba, with affection. Harry Truman, a former president of America could not be more right when he said, Mr. Jinnah was the recipient of a devotion of loyalty seldom accorded to any man. The grateful nation called him, Kwadi Azam, the great leader. From Mr. M.A. Jinnah in the teens he was Kwadi Azam in the late 30s, to his people and to the world at large. Even Gandhi in his letter on 16 January 1940 was obliged to address him as, Dear Kwaitism. It was in this very letter that Gandhi, perhaps sarcastically asked him, Shall I call you Kwaiti Azam or continue to address you Mr. Jinnah as before? To which the Kwaiti Azam retorted, Call a rose by whatever name you may, it will always smell like a rose. Mr. Jinnah was a one-man, think tank, of the Muslim League and Muslims of the subcontinent. Congress Working Committee with all its top brass including Mahatma Gandhi, Nehru, Patel, Azad and the rest deliberating together for days would come up with long-winded arguments confronting the League on national and party issues. Kwadi Azam then would dictate to his personal assistant in one sitting, comprehensive and irrefutable replies to all the points raised by the Congress. Similarly on the conference table, he was more than a match to mount, always elegantly dressed in his Seville Row tailored pin-striped suit or wearing a flawless cream-colored Sherwani and Jinnah cap he attended conferences, participated in round-table talks with the viceroys and congress leaders and traveled in style in the first class, at his own expense from town to town to address public rallies in English where almost over 80% of his audience could not understand a word of English but they raptly listened to him in silence. The Muslim masses were one behind him but some big-name Muslim politicians for their personal ends particularly in the Muslim-majority provinces of Punjab and Bengal were, with him and not with him. Some such politicians joined Viceroy's Defense Council against the advice of Mr. Jinnah and later when threatened to be expelled from the Muslim League, many of them blatantly resigned from the council. After World War II the Labour government of Adli decided to free India and transfer power to the elected representatives. The political climate in India during the Congress rule in Muslim minority provinces after 1937 elections was hurting the Muslims. There were even calculative attempts to obliterate the Muslims as a separate cultural entity. The Muslims for their own safety drifted away from the mainstream Indian national politics. Mr. M. A. Jinnah was now the Kwaiti Azam and the established leader of Muslim India and All India Muslim League as the sole representative body of the community. Kwaiti Azam knew that the time was ripe and on 23 March 1940 under the lofty minarets of Bidshahi Mosque Lahore, he declared Muslims as a nation and demanded a separate homeland for the Muslims of the subcontinent. The resolution known as the Pakistan Resolution was moved by Malvi A.K. Fazal ul-Haq of Bengal. 
The whole of Lahore ranted with Pakistan's Zindabad slogans. There was no stopping them and the surge for an independent country that started with the passing of this resolution snowballed into a revolution and within seven years on August 14, 1947 the independent Muslim state of Pakistan appeared on the map of the world. Jinnah the political saint had done it. After the passing of the Pakistan resolution in March 1940 this became a passion with Muslim India which threatened to change the trend of Indian politic from Indian independence to divide and quit. The British government saw the weight behind the Muslim demand and in 1942 sent Sir Stafford Cripps with certain proposals for the transfer of power. Congress and the League, both for their own reasons rejected the proposals. The 1945-46 general elections gave Muslim League a unique position. There was a clean sweep when the League captured all the 30 seats in the central legislature and 423 out of the total 493 seats in all the 11 provinces. Kwaiti Azam was now in an impregnable position of his demand for a separate homeland for the Muslims. British government was determined to transfer power but were keen to retain the unity of the country. Once again in 1946 the British government sent what is known as a cabinet mission to resolve the constitutional deadlock. The mission presented its plan that envisaged three federal groups, two comprising the Muslim-majority provinces, linked to the centers in a loose federation with three subjects only. The third group was the rest of India. All India Muslim League accepted the plan as a strategic move and as a first step for the attainment of their final goal. The Congress also accepted the plan but soon realized its long-term implications and wrestled from its stand. On the Congress rejection, the Muslim League also renounced its acceptance and observed 16th of August as a direct action day. Hindu India reacted and there was a lot of bloodshed as a result. Lord Louis Mountbatten, the last Viceroy of the British Crown arrived in India mandated to hand over power to the Indians preferable as a united India. Mountbatten's conduct as an honest broker left much to be desired and then the dubious border alignments by the Radcliffe Commission are a subject for separate consideration. The Radcliffe Award was so blatantly prejudiced against Pakistan through Mountbatten-Radcliffe axis that even Mr. Beaumont secretary of the commission had to say, grave discreet to both. Mountbatten and Radcliffe to sum up and to back my assertion of Jinnah, a political saint, I will repeat the words of Professor Sharif al-Mujahid with his permission of course when he said, Jinnah had termed the Muslims a separate entity in 1935. He upgraded them to a third-party status in 1937 and to nationhood in 1940. And within seven years he secured a national homeland for that nation. That was Saint Jinnah, the in-